You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. And then last week, we highlighted specifically, <clears throat> and we looked at um, John Piper's uh, look at the book activity uh, with Second Peter chapter 1. Uh, talking about the promises of God and how they uh, they continue to um, press us on uh, to clinging fast to the things that He's called us to. Um, verse three of First Peter chapter one it says, "His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious." And very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. So it's through a knowledge of God, a knowledge of his promises, that we become partakers of his divine nature to escape the corruption of this world. So we escape temptation, we escape lust, we escape the things of this world by clinging to those promises that God has made us aware of. And so that's what we're seeing Abram doing in his own life. Uh, so back in Genesis chapter 14, and we've already read through the text this morning, and it is a lengthy, a lengthy passage of scripture, but there's some initial things that really jumped out to me um, in reading and studying that I wanted to share with you up front before we really unpack that summary sentence. Um, first of all, The rescue of Lot is a strong reminder that God's concern does not lie only with the physical descendants of Abram. We see that in the New Testament, that there's constant reminders that it's not the physical descendants of Abram that are considered the children of faith. Um, But this is another reminder that while God is making promises to Abram and his descendants, that it's not always tied specifically to physical descendants. It's not as though God has abandoned all care and concern for people that are not Jewish. Okay, so we understand the Jewish nation comes directly from Abram. Lot, while he's a relative, is not a direct descendant of Abram. But the fact that this whole chapter kind of focuses on the rescue of Lot, it's a strong reminder to us that God's concern does not lie only with the physical descendants of Abram. I think that's an important point to look at. Secondly, God sovereignly protected Abram from being in the path of war and invasion. You know, so from a human standpoint, we said Abram could have walked away from that situation thinking, I knew he was going to choose the best land. Like that's really what I was hoping to be able to get. And Lot took the best land. We don't always have the advantage of the big picture, right? So, so God wants to provide protection to Abram. He's promised protection to Abram. Right? He says, I'm going I'm to protect you, I'm going to bless you, I'm going to take care of you. This is God working out that plan of protection, right? Instead of Abram being near Sodom, where we're going to see this invasion happens with, he's, he's actually in the hill country, and he's guarded and protected. And, and from the text, we have no indication that these other kings pay him any attention. Um, and this is God's protection over him. While Abram would not have seen that, right? And there's circumstances that we go through that we look at and say, This is not how it should be playing out. Abram could have easily looked at it in chapter 13 and said, this is not how this should be playing out. God has promised me good, and he stuck me with the worst land. You know, he gave the best land to my nephew who's not part of the promise, who's not part of the covenant. And what we have here instead is that God, as the story unfolds, now kind of clues us into the fact as to why he put Abram where he did. It was to protect him, protecting him from being in the path of war and invasion. Number three, this is perhaps the first example of a nation seeing another nation act unjustly towards neighboring nations and deciding that doing nothing is not the right thing to do. Now, this this has precedent for, uh, at times, how our country acts towards other nations. And this is not to... This is not to say that our nation has every right in every circumstance and situation to get involved in international affairs, but this is an example where Abram, God is building a nation from his family. This is an incident where Abram looks around and sees other nations acting unjustly or unjustly towards neighboring nations, and he doesn't sit back and just let it happen. Now, we know that because Abram, could have, Abram I think, could have skipped a lot of the, the headache of having to travel to rescue Lot 
more than likely he could have gotten away with sending a letter to Chedorlaomer and these other kings and said, what's it going to take to rescue my nephew? What's, what's the cost? Because more than likely they took Lot and all these people back to sell them as slaves anyways. Um, so there's a good chance that Abram could have, could have saved himself from trouble and just said, hey, name the price, I'll write the check, right? He's got all these riches from Egypt. They were not really concerned about Lot. He wasn't anything special. He was a foreigner living in Sodom. So it would have been very likely that Abram could have worked out some type of exchange to rescue him. But what we see is that, that Abram tracks down the, these kings and obliterates them, wipes them out and makes things right and actually brings everybody from Sodom back, not just his nephew. So you could look at this story and say, well, this is all about Lot and all about how Abram wants to take care of his nephew. But I think we miss it if we see that he also rescued a lot of other people with Lot. You know, he's called to be a blessing to those around him and to bless other nations. This is a prime example of God fulfilling that promise. This is Abram being a blessing to some other nations right here because he steps in and wins a victory that they were incapable of winning. Um, and so I do think this serves as an example that, um, that there, are, there are times when a nation looks around and sees injustice happening and has the right to step in and say, we're not going to allow this to happen, right? With, with, with thinking back to World War II where there was injustice happening to the Jewish people and to others in Germany uh, that our country was, was obligated to step in and maybe should have stepped in earlier before Pearl Harbor happened um, had we been more in tune with what was happening in that nation. There are times when a nation should step in and say, this is not okay. In the name of justice, this is not okay for these people to act this way. I think we see that in this chapter. Number four, acting justly affords us the chance to work with non-believers who value the same outcome. All right, we know from Micah chapter 6, Verse 8, the believers have the responsibility to walk justly. It says, he has told you, O man, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? A lot of ministries that are popping up and maybe in our area that, that want to see uh, justice happen and, and things like um, uh, slave trading uh, or sex slaves. You know, there's a, there's a big push right now to end that type of slavery. I um, mean, a lot of that's tied to verses in the Old Testament like this to talk about us uh, walking justly and pursuing justice. And what I think we find in this chapter is that as we seek to act justly in our context, wherever we're living, we, 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 can, we can participate in organizations that maybe aren't Christian in nature, but they have the same goals and desires that we have. Because Abram doesn't do this alone. He doesn't go and win this victory by himself. He brings some people that he's in a relationship with. He brings some, some partners with him that also value seeing this rectified and seeing this uh, brought to resolution, this issue with these kings and these nations. So uh, I think it's a good reminder to us as well that when we see other organizations, Christian or non-Christian, that have the same desires that we have for justice, that it affords us the opportunity to work with them as well. And then number five, I think this passage provides a lot of encouragement to Israel when they were initially reading this, that powerful nations can be defeated by a faithful God. Because as Israel comes into the promised land, and you'll remember this was written before they come into the promised land by Moses, this would have served as a, as a reminder that a faithful God is more powerful than any nation that they would come up against. There's encouragement offered to Israel. And then one that I didn't put in our notes that I was thinking through uh, even as we were singing today. Um, so if you wanted to add a number six there, there is, um, I'm trying to think how to, essentially what we see here is God setting the stage for Sodom's judgment and his rightful judgment of Sodom. Okay? We know from Scripture that Lot is counted as a righteous man. And from our human perspective, it is hard to understand why. Because we don't see a lot of victory in the narrative of Lot. But we are told in the New Testament that he was constantly grieved over the behavior and activity around him. And so we can 
hopefully trust that there was at least conversation, there was at least some activity by Lot in Sodom that would have called them to repentance during the years that he lived there. Because the, the, the word calls him righteous and says that he was grieved over the activity. But taking Lot kind of aside, this is an example where God brought some initial judgment on Sodom, but not complete judgment, right? There are people that are taken away and people that are brought back. And there's a bargain that takes place with Abram and the king of Sodom. And Sodom says, I want my people back. Implying that there are still people to, to go back and inhabit Sodom. This sets the stage for what's coming in the future when God says, I'm done with Sodom. Their wickedness and evil is, is not going to change. This shows us God's grace. They're already evil. We've already seen that, that verdict uh, applied to them in chapter 13. They're an evil people. Lot should have never moved there. God allowed him to move there, which was an act of grace for the Sodomites because they would have hopefully heard um, about Yahweh and his goodness through conversations with Lot because he was grieved over the activity. But if nothing else, there's at least a wake-up call here where judgment comes and they are rescued back and allowed to go back to their town, allowed to go back to their country, to their area. Um, but it doesn't change them. It doesn't change them. Uh, but it is a, a thing that we can take away from that, that God's judgment is always just and he's always calling to repentance and he's always acting graciously. I mean, we see that towards the nation of Sodom as well. All right, um, as we get into our notes here, the uh, first thing I want us to note is that worldly treasure leads to war and violence. Worldly treasure leads to war and violence. You'll remember that we said uh, Lot was operating with his eyes uh, and, and seeing the things that were good about the land. And so he moves here. And ultimately what, what unfolds here at the beginning of this chapter is the first war that's mentioned in Scripture. The divided nations that um, occurred at the Tower of Babel are now at war with each other. And that's not to say that there wasn't fighting going on before this. But this is the first recorded war that we have. This is nations coming against nations. And it's really tied to, to worldly goods, right? It's tied to worldly goods. You're supposed to be paying us a tribute. You're supposed to be paying us monthly for us not to come attack you. And these people decide to stop paying. It's the first war that's mentioned in Scripture. The culture that we're seeing here is to, uh, to respond to, the, the response to natural desires is to invade, to fight, and to take. It's violent and evil. We see this mindset rebuked in the New Testament in James chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have so that you murder. You covet and cannot obtain so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Matthew chapter 6 Verse 19 and 20, another reminder from Christ. He says, do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. In Luke chapter 12, verses 32 and following, it says, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. See, in, in the context here, Abram is having to learn, he's having to be transformed from this mindset of thinking that if you want something, you have to go take it. God is teaching him that he needs to believe and receive these things from God and not feel like he has to go invade and take what he wants. That's the mindset of the culture there. It was the, uh, we want things. And so we're going to go take things and we're going to do it unjustly if necessary. God's transforming Abram's thinking that, okay, if I, if I want good, then I'm going to believe that God's going to give that to me. And I'm, I'm going to put my faith and trust in his good intent towards me. So let's kind of break down the, the, um, the narrative here. And so I want to, rather than reading through the whole thing again, I want to give you kind of a a summary of what's happening here. First of all, we have this guy named Cheddar Lomer, and he's ruling over five kings. 
Okay? He's already invaded and subdued these people. So when the chapter opens, there's already been an arrangement made. This guy has already come and conquered these cities, and there's already been an agreement that they're going to pay tribute to him so that he doesn't come back and squash them, basically. Um, I couldn't help but, uh, in my reading and studying, thinking of the, the movie A Bug's Life. This is... This is the ants having to answer to the grasshoppers, right? This is Hopper and his people showing up and saying, you owe us, you owe us, you owe us, and if you don't pay us, we'll come back and squash you guys. That was the arrangement that was made. At some point, at some point, Cheddar Lomer had come and had invaded these people and had conquered these people, but not fully because he saw advantage in not conquering them. If I let these people exist and live, they can actually benefit me. They can pay tribute to me. So there was an arrangement, and that arrangement played out for 12 years. It played out for 12 years. But finally, and what the commentators call these five kings, they call them the Dead Sea Kings because of where they lived. The five Dead Sea Kings revolt and refuse to pay. And this provokes war. And there's rumors of wars now circulating. And this would have been a test of faith for Abram. Okay, so let's, let's kind of put ourselves in the context of what's happening here. This, this would have been a, a point of discussion that would have circulated. Okay, the, the five kings have decided to stop paying Cheddar Lomer. They're not going to pay him anymore. And, and that's going to make him angry. And, and more than likely, his army is going to march this way. And so Abram, new to the area, would have started getting these news reports that the land is about to be under attack. And I'm sure it was definitely a stressful, anxious time for Lot and his family. They would have heard the... The, the political side of this. They would have heard the discussions that, man, we're tired of having to pay these people that, that aren't here. You know, it would have been kind of similar to, uh, to what happened with the American Revolution, that we, we were tired of paying taxes and, and kind of the mindset that you see in some of the movies that maybe you watch in that time frame, that there was the rumors of war that was going to happen. And so there would have been some anxious feelings that, that Abram and his family probably would have felt as well being sojourners here in this land. So Cheddar Lomer reacts and he unites with three other kings. And they come in and they devastate the area. Now if you read through this, what you find is that they don't just come and deal with the five kings that stop paying the tribute. They actually come in a strategic way and they wipe out all of the surrounding cities. Eventually coming to deal with the five kings, but ultimately eliminating any allies that could come and help them. And they just mow through these people. They're just, they're just coming through city after city and just mowing over them um, and, and defeating them. And this is a, a, a scary setting, I think, because as the as word gets to the five kings and probably filtrates down to Abram, word on the street is, is that this army can't be stopped. Uh, this, this army being led by Cheddar Lawmer cannot be stopped. It's, it's almost like his, his name sounds like a lawnmower, Cheddar Lawmer. He's just mowing over cities, right? Just mowing over cities, just defeating them. Just a, a, an unbelievably powerful army that can't be stopped. Um, and, and, and all the great armies have come up against him and have tried to stop him. And I guess my mind was just going in all kinds of different directions uh, when I was studying through this because I was reminded of, how many of you have seen the movie Willow? Old movie. All right, in that movie, there is a powerful army that every army comes up against and is defeated, constantly being defeated by this great army. And that's what the picture is here is this army can't be stopped. And the five kings start to realize that they're not just coming for us. They have cut us off. They've defeated everyone around us. There's no one to, to align ourselves with. So the third point, the northern kings defeat the Dead Sea kings in convincing fashion. We skip down to um, Verse 11, so the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the, sons of a the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. Probably shouldn't be missed that Lot's digression has led him to dwelling in Sodom. Um, when we, when we last, last looked at him in chapter 13, he had just simply uh, moved close to Sodom. His tents were, were near Sodom. Now he's actually dwelling in Sodom. And we'll see down the road that he actually becomes an important figure in Sodom. But here at this point, he's simply dwelling in Sodom, and he's part of, uh, he's part of the invasion. And he's taken away as a result of uh, Sodom falling. He's captured as part of the spoils of war. 
This is a strong reminder, and the verses we've read remind us of this, that, that when we put our hope and faith in worldly treasures, we're putting our trust in something that can be taken away from us, right? Lot had banked his future, had banked his future on that land and what it provided financially. And it's only a few years later that this army comes in and just takes it all away. You know, Jesus reminds us, don't put your faith and trust in, in treasures that thieves can come and take from you. This is, a, this is another reminder to Abram that he made the right choice, that putting his faith in God's good intent was better than making some compromise to move to Sodom where the land was good, where the, where the area was evil but maybe good financially, that when we make financial decisions, that oftentimes it leads to, uh, to tragedy in our life because those things can be taken away. If that's where our hope and trust is, those things are not worth trusting in because they are not permanent. Lot experiences that. And I'm sure Lot had that, that thought process running through his mind as he travels where they're going. Because this is, at a minimum, it's about 120 miles that they take him from where he was located in Sodom back to where they came from. So this isn't just right down the street, Abram responds and says, let's go take care of business. This wasn't a neighborhood issue. This was a journey that he and his men were going to have to go on to get this right. Um, and Abram had a long journey back to where these kings came from to think about some of the choices that he had made and what had led him to be in this situation. So worldly treasure leads to war and violence. That's what's happening in the world. Okay, So we take a break from looking at Abram and how God's dealing with him, and we just see a worldly situation here. There's nations that are fighting that are oblivious to what God's doing in Abram's life and probably oblivious to Lot and his presence in Sodom. It's just worldly, unbelieving people living out their, their, their selfish desires and fighting over worldly goods. And Abram and Lot are involved in that. Okay, so worldly treasure leads to war and violence. Secondly, being a blessing leads to sacrifice and humility. Being a blessing leads to sacrifice and humility. Abram acts as a king and rallies his men to defend his land. And I think, I think maybe Anna was talking about this. I think there is a, a mindset here that starts to spring up in Abram that uh, he begins to function, kind of seeing things that are not yet here, you know, seeing with, with faithful eyes, even though his physical eyes don't see it, acting as though this is my land. This is land that God has given to me. And, and he responds and says, what has happened here is unjust. It's unjust towards my nephew, and it's probably unjust for these people that live 120 miles away to expect that people over here should pay money to them, and then when they don't, come over here and want to fight about it. So he steps in and responds to these actions, and he responds like a king because, like I said, he doesn't act like a, a sojourner and send a, a note that says, what do I need to do to get my nephew back? Right? That would be an individualistic perspective on it. But he has kind of a national perspective about this. You came into our land and you took people and you invaded. We're going to respond in the same way you came in. And so I do believe he's acting like a king here. He's rallying his troops because he puts together an army. This isn't, this isn't Shepherd Abram responding and going and getting his nephew. This is, this is king. And, and I, I think I, I appreciate this story so much because it's one that gets left out of most Sunday school discussions around Abram. If you're talking about Abram, you're talking about his call, you talk about his blunder in Egypt, you talk about Isaac, you talk about him sacrificing his son. Those are the stories that get highlighted. Some of you may have never heard this account of Abram. And I think it's a stark contrast to what we even visualize when we think of Abram. We think of older man, white beard, who can't have a baby. But we do have a man who can still fight because he leads triumphantly a group of men to go battle this great army that nobody else has been able to beat. Um, and I think it's cool to see how God uses him in this way. And I think it helps us have a better perspective of the man that we're learning about. Um, he's no longer thinking about himself here either. You remember in Egypt, he was all concerned about it going well with him. Remember, he tells his wife, let's, let's do this so that it goes well with me. And he's kind of abandoned that thinking, at least for now. He's now concerned about it going well with his nephew Lot. He's not as inwardly focused as he was previously. He's not as concerned about his own rights and his own safety. He's far more concerned about the safety of someone around him. All right? he's, he's starting to embrace this responsibility of being a blessing and realizing that it leads to sacrifice and humility. 
he takes a divided army and attacks at night. So he rallies these troops. We're told specifically that he takes 318 people that were born in his house. So these are these are men that were born from people that came with them. Uh, remember that he kind of uh, collected a following uh, when his father, they settled down in Haran and they, and they kind of bring some people with them. Um, these are people that were born, it, it seems, uh, in his house, people that were born to people that had come uh, with Abram. It says that in uh, verse 14, when Abram heard that the kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. Previously, it says that he took people with him that were allies of his uh, to go with him, and he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them. Then he brought back all the possessions. We don't get a whole lot of insight into how this happens, and and I think it would certainly certainly satisfy some curiosity because, like I said, this is an army that had not been defeated. And now Abram comes probably highly outmatched from a numbers standpoint and is able to defeat this army. Some things that factor into it. One, this army has beaten everybody that they're aware of. So they feel probably they can sleep very peacefully at night. They've wiped out everybody. Um, secondly, it's at night. And we've seen this type of confusion later on uh, in the account of Gideon, right? Gideon shows up with his 300 men. And there's confusion that ensues because, one, it's a battle at night. So it's very hard to determine are we outnumbered or not outnumbered. And it's very possible that this battle plays out much like the Gideon battle where these uh, these soldiers probably end up fighting themselves. You know, it's pitch black at night. It's dark. They're having a hard time seeing who's who. All they know is they're scared because people have come into their camp to fight and to attack. And, and it leads to victory. So there's some things that work to the advantage of Abram. There's there's confusion because it's nighttime. Uh, the, the soldiers are caught off guard because they're probably relishing in their victories. But ultimately, as we're going to see, Melchizedek attributes this to God and his power that from a naturalistic standpoint, Abram has no business winning this battle. He has no business winning this war. He's outnumbered. Um, at this point, it's, it's four kings that he comes in and attacks that have already beaten five kings. But God does give him this victory. This was a great army that was defeated, only possible with God granting the victory. In your notes there, number one, Abram's actions were undeserved by Lot. Okay, so we've seen kind of the narrative. There was conflict between kings. It was a, an arrangement that had been made that had fallen apart. So the kings that felt like they were owed came to collect. Um, and in the process, they devastate everyone in between. They take people back as kind of a, a payment maybe for, for missed payments. So that they come in, they take, and they collect. Abram comes down, uh, brings a, a group of men, and, and they come in and devastate back uh, this army and rescue Lot. But I think it's important to note that Abram's actions were undeserved by Lot. You remember the, the last conversation that we're aware of that these two men had involved conflict and Abram being the bigger man here trying to resolve the conflict. Lot, go live where you want to live. I'll live with whatever's left. All right, this probably produced some struggle for Abram. If nothing else... It had caused him heartache and headache trying to deal with the griping and complaining of their of their workers. And he lets Lot go. He releases his own rights to the land, lets him go. And then Lot essentially reaps what he has sowed, right? He, 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 he'd make this choice. He's the one that chose to live there. He selfishly took the best rather than deferring to Abram. And now he's in trouble. Now he's been taken away. Abram shows no bitterness and no desire for vengeance regarding Lot. There's no ill will regarding the difficulties that Lot had caused him. Abram shows no self-righteousness. There's no, you reaped what you sowed, Lot. He promptly goes to aid the one in distress. Matthew Henry says, Though others have been wanting in their duty to us, yet we must not therefore deny our duty to them. This is a a beautiful picture of what Christ does in his passionate pursuit of us, right? He leaves the comforts of heaven to come to this earth to rescue us when we're his enemies. Lot has 
become somewhat of an enemy of Abram because of the conflict that was caused. Abram's trying to resolve that so that they aren't enemies. He, he separates from Lot. Lot doesn't deserve this. Abram doesn't have to involve himself in this. We could probably sit back and argue that, that Abram should, should just let it be, that, that Lot's made his choice. And, and Lot continues to make bad choices because Lot comes back and keeps living in Sodom. But this is a beautiful picture of Christ in the cross for us because Christ comes passionately running after us when we are his enemies. And Abram, Abram pictures that for us and how he goes passionately after Lot when he doesn't deserve it, when he's done nothing to warrant this type of response, Abram goes after Lot to rescue him. And I would venture to say that if it had been reversed and Abram had clung to his rights and had moved his own family to Sodom, that Lot may have sat back and watched and not come after Abram. Abram, a man of faith, recognizes that my relationship to Lot and what the right thing to do is in this situation is not tied to how he's functioned toward me. But the right thing to do is to go and rescue him. And Matthew Henry reminds us of that, that our duty towards other men is not tied to how well they've performed duties towards us. We don't respond with grace to others if they've been gracious to us. That's not what we're called to do in Scripture. We're not called to act towards others based on how they've acted towards us. That we have a calling and a, and a, um, a commission to be a blessing to others, whether they return that type of blessing towards us or not. Abram essentially models the spiritual rescue described in Galatians 6.1. If you have your Bibles, you can turn over to Galatians 6.1. I think this is important. I mean, we could take this chapter and talk about whether war is ever right for a Christian to be involved in. Most of us, it seems, will probably, at least moving forward, not experience war uh, ourselves, that we're not going to be called to take up arms. Again, that may change in the future, but at least for the here and now, that's not a pressing matter for us to determine should or should we not fight a war right now. But there are some spiritual implications for us here. Abram, Abram sees a, a brother in Christ, because again, we're going to call Lot a brother in Christ because the Bible says that he's a righteous man. So we're going we're gonna to assume that while we, we don't see the big picture, God does and sees that, that he is justified in the eyes of God because of Christ's righteousness. So Abram sees a brother in Christ and says, I will go get him. He has fallen. He has fallen to the world's goods. He is entwined in the, in the worldly deceptions, and it's led to an even further fall for him. He's now in captivity. And for us as believers, this is something that we see at times around us. We see a brother or sister in Christ that gets entangled in the affairs of this world and at times leads them back into hopefully a temporary enslavement to sin. And the Bible calls us to also go and to rescue those people out of that Galatians 6 1 brothers if anyone is caught in any transgression you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted be tempted bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ Abram pictures this for us he models this type of mindset and too often we measure our involvement with others based on the per, how the person has treated us recently and the level of inconvenience it will cause us. Oftentimes that's how we determine our involvement with other people. Is it somebody that I deem worthy of myself getting involved with based on how they've treated me? You know, somebody falls into a time of need. Well, what's my relationship been like with them? And that drives how involved we get with them. Oftentimes we allow that to dictate our level of involvement and the level of inconvenience that it causes us. This is an extremely inconvenient response for Abram, right? He has to, he has to travel 120 miles there, 120 miles back. He has to do a lot of fighting to win this victory, to bring a guy back who has really caused him nothing but trouble since he left town. Since he left his hometown with Lot, all we've seen is trouble, trouble, trouble. And we're going we're to continue to see that Lot continues to make poor choices. Abram says, you know what? The right thing to do is to go get him. The right thing to do is to go get him. Doesn't matter how he's treated me. Doesn't matter if, if he treats me better or not in the future. The right thing to do is to go and get him. And that's what we see Abram does. For us, you know, talking about it from a spiritual standpoint, our battle is spiritual in nature and demands a greater level of preparation and activity. I know for some of us that have walked and labored through the spiritual battles, 
if given the choice at times, it would be easier. It feels like to walk 120 miles and fight a fight and come back and be done with it. The spiritual battle that presents a, a whole different level of activity and preparation. We're not battling flesh and blood. Second Corinthians chapter 10 verses three through five. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but of divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinions raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. See, if it would be easy if we had to call men or women in our church to go rescue people because they've been enslaved by, by, by human people and we need to go pick up our swords and go fight and bring them back. That would be a lot easier than at times when we have to call upon each other to go to spiritual battle. Because one, it necessitates us taking up weapons, but weapons that aren't always as easy to take up as a sword. But what we do find is that these men were trained to handle a sword. And when it comes from a spiritual perspective, we too have to be trained to use the sword that God has given us. We can't go to spiritual battle for each other. We can't really fulfill Galatians 6, 1, where it says if a brother falls into sin, go and rescue that person. If we haven't trained ourselves to defeat lofty arguments that that person is believing about sin. Right. Lot had an enemy. It was it was a it was a, a, an army, a group of soldiers that had to be defeated. And it warranted a certain type of training and a certain type of weapon. Abram pulls up the sword. They're trained to use the sword. They go track him down and they fight and they kill and they bring Lot home. When we lose someone from our church to sin, an earthly sword really has no bearing on that situation. Instead, we have to come with with God's promises to defeat arguments that they are listening to inside their soul about what this world has to offer. And that demands a whole different level of preparation and activity. Like I said, I think it would be easier to go to battle with a sword and defeat an earthly enemy than to have to battle spiritual enemies, right? Because there is a battle for the souls of people that incorporates a whole spiritual realm into that. And it necessitates that we be prepared, Bible says in 2 Timothy that, that God's word is a sword that is, that is capable, that is capable for, for us using it as correction and for doctrine, for building us up. But it, it means that we have to be prepared to know how to use it if we're going to be a blessing to others when they need us. Abram was prepared for this earthly battle. He had trained these men. They picked up their swords and they went to battle. For us, like I said, we're not battling earthly battles right now. It's spiritual battles. And we too have to be prepared to be able to take up our weapons and fight. To be a blessing to others and to go and rescue people when needed and to do so from a spiritual standpoint. Abram models that mindset at least for us. He wins this battle. Secondly, Abram's success, his success did not cause him to forget the source. Abram's goal in victory is for God to receive glory. And we see that unfold when he comes back home. So he wins this great victory over these kings. He returns home. It says in verse 17, after his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh. That is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. Abram's victory is an opportunity for him to seize power and land as the victor. The question is, would his behavior be altered by this success? I mean, Abram's won a great victory here. All the cities in the area have been defeated. They couldn't beat this army. Abram and his men beat the army, defeat the army. This could easily have been an opportunity for Abram to cling to what God had already promised to give him and say, okay, I'm now the king of this area. You guys were all defeated by Cheddar Lomer and his friends I've defeated them, so the rightful ruler of this land now is me. He has the opportunity to claim victory here and to be the victor, to be the conqueror. 
Will he capitalize on this opportunity to promote himself? Will he capitalize on this opportunity for his name to be great? Or will he continue to believe God's promises that God is going to elevate him to this position? The victory celebration that we see here takes place just south of Jerusalem. That's significant because Melchizedek is called the king of Salem, meaning that he was the ruler of the city of Jerusalem that we come to know later in the Old Testament. Again, we'll look more at Melchizedek and his identity next week. But these two kings come out to greet Abram upon his return, the king of Salem and the king of Sodom. One sees the victory through human eyes. The king of Sodom sees what happened here as a, as a human effort, as a human defeat, and wants to give credit to Abram, wants to reward Abram for his victory, but ultimately sees it as a human endeavor and a human feat that was accomplished. The other sees the victory through divine eyes. This was a great act of God. And Melchizedek gets credit, gives credit to God for this. The king of Salem has the opportunity to speak first. Melchizedek takes advantage of speaking to Abram first and offers a blessing from God. And the focus of what Melchizedek says here is on the giver and not the gifts. Attention and direction is pointed towards the God who has given this victory. It's important to note that Melchizedek acknowledges the same God of Abram. I mean, it's a similar confession to what we see in Joshua chapter 2 with Rahab. You'll remember when, when Rahab entertains the spies and has the conversation with them, she talks about the God of Israel being the God of heaven and the God of earth, giving him supreme power, supreme power and authority. Nebuchadnezzar does something very similar um, in Daniel chapter 4. talks about God of Israel being the most high God. So we have Melchizedek confessing some of these same things as well. This concept of possessor of heaven and earth grounds the blessing and promises of God in the ultimate power of the universe. When we talk about God's promises, it's worth us reminding ourselves that the God we serve is the God of the heavens and the earth. That that he has supreme power in the universe. You know, we, we, we see kings here in this passage. Tyson led us to sing about our coming king and I've talked about this before. I think sometimes we are so disconnected from the concept of kingship based on the government that we live under. We live under a government where power is so dissipated and spread out. We kind of lose the concept, even with a, a figurehead like the president, who's limited with his power, limited in his ability to, ability to make decisions. What we see running rampant in this passage are individual men making decisions for large groups of people. And people having to be submitted to that leadership. We look forward to the day that a king comes back. A king who is the possessor of heaven and earth. Who possesses all wisdom. Because we hesitate over the idea of one man being an authority. Why? Because we know men are corrupt. And to give one man that type of authority. If he's not a good man. Leads to the downfall of the people. And so we, we protect ourselves from one man being an authority. Even within our church. We spread the authority over the the, um, the group of elders so that it's not one individual leading our church family either. But we can look forward to and long for the day when we have a king who sits upon the throne who can make split-second decisions that are good for the people. You know, because one, one of the downfalls of how our government's even set up is that it takes so long for decisions to even be made. So many people have to bring before it and vote upon it, and then it has to move through legislation. It could be a really good law that takes forever to enact because of how many safeguards there are in place, necessary safeguards. What a joy to think about the day when Jesus Christ returns to this earth and is leading this earth and able to make decisions on the spot that are good, that are coming from his wisdom. We long for that day. We look forward to that day. The possessor of heaven and earth. Walter Brueggemann says, these blessings invite us to take creation faith out of the arena of origins and see it as a source for life buoying and joy in the trials of the day. Let's don't just lock into the fact that we talked about creation and God being the creator and make it strictly an, an apologetic understanding. That creation, yes, evolution, no. That the fact that he's the possessor of heaven and earth gives us hope for the, for the things that we're going to face this week. It gives us uh, the, the, this life hope that the possessor of heaven and earth is, is also the possessor of our life and leads us and provides good for us. 
Melchizedek draws Abram's attention back to that. So he brings blessing from God. Sodom offers a bargain. The king of Sodom says, I'll, I'll, I'll give you the, the property or the prosperity from this if you'll give me my people back. I think it's worth noting that Sodom really wasn't in a position to bargain here. Right? Like he, he assumes that he has the right to ask for these things. But as we've said, Abram conquered the conqueror. He should have rights to the land now. And we see Abram refuses the material blessing here. Abram turns down this offer. He says, uh, he says to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I should not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say I have made Abram rich. I'll take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshkel, and Mamre take their share. These are the people that he was in alliance with. He refuses the material blessing to keep the focus on God as the hero. There's probably an element here where he learned the folly of accepting an evil ruler's goods. Remember, he took, he, he took the bait in Egypt. We saw that the things that he gained in Egypt led to the conflict in his family that forced him and Lot to have to separate. So Abram says, no, I, I'm, I'm not interested in your stuff. And I think the way the text reads, it, it affords us the, the possibility that um, Abram may have taken this oath prior to the victory. He says, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap. The way he's talking here seems to imply that this was a prior arrangement that he made with God. It may have been that before setting out for battle, Abram said, God, we want the victory here. We want Lot rescued. And if you'll do this, I'm not interested in it, in it being uh, an enriching opportunity for me. I'm not looking to gain from this. I'm not looking to involve myself to be a blessing to someone else with the hope of it generating a return for me. That's an important mindset for us as well. As we strive to be a blessing to others, it's not about what we can get from that relationship. We're called to use our talents and our resources and our abilities to build other people up, to be a blessing whether it gives us a return or not. And it seems as though Abram anticipates the possibility of this and, and sets it in his heart to refuse it if it does come. He proactively fought against the possibility of temptation here. He won't allow this campaign to enrich himself. His motivation for going to battle was different than what we see these un, other ungodly people battling for. Right? The whole the whole war, the whole battle is focused on we want the world's goods. Lest there be any confusion as to why Abram entered into this, he says, I'm not, I wasn't here to get goods from this. I wanted my nephew home. And I felt like what happened to you guys was unjust, and so I wanted you guys back home as well. But I wasn't in it to gain from it. See, if Abram had, had taken the spoils of war, he'd have been no different than Cheddar Lomer and, and the other kings that were battling. It was all about the world's goods. Abram says, that's not, that wasn't the big picture here. That wasn't the big picture here. Uh, a brother in Christ was, was taken away in slavery, and I wanted him rescued, and I wanted him brought back. I think it is important to note that he doesn't forget the ones who fought with him, though. He makes sure they're taken care of. You know, he had made this oath for himself. He had determined that he wasn't going to take the spoils of it, but he certainly wasn't going to withhold that from those that had helped him. So even uh, deferring the glory that could have come his way, he, he turns and says, no, make sure that the people that went with me are taken care of. Uh, make sure that the person that came with me is, is taken care of, not me. Um, as I was studying this, I couldn't help but think about um, a guy at Trinity who, who's, who's modeling this type of behavior to me. And I, and I thanked him for it. I said, hey, I was reading and studying this. I just wanted to point out that I think that you're a great example of this mindset. He's a guy who, um, head coach of the sport, so he gets a certain amount of money as a stipend. Um, but doesn't really need it financially. And so he's told me before that he doesn't take it. Instead, he increases the the stipend of his assistant coaches so that they actually get more money because they have a greater need for it than he does. And so I told him, I said, thanks for being a model of what I'm reading about here because here's a guy who could have taken the spoil of his effort and not really acknowledge those that helped him. But instead of taking it, he says, nope, defer that to those that have helped me accomplish what we've accomplished. And so that's another helpful mindset for us as well, that we don't forget those around us that oftentimes make us successful. Last note here for us, the blessing of Melchizedek keeps Abram oriented properly on God's promise as being superior 
to the world's offerings. I think it's probably helpful that Melchizedek had the opportunity to speak first, lest Abram's heart would have been inclined to accept this. But Melchizedek gets to offer the the blessing and the promises of God before he hears Sodom's offer. You know, this is a reminder to Abram that God is in control, that he is the possessor of heaven and earth, that it's to him that glory is due in this situation, not Abram. And it's a reminder to us that if we're if we're doing what we talked about last week, constantly keeping our minds set on the promises of God, it helps us to be to to be aware constantly that the promises of God are superior to the world's offerings. In, in Abram's mind, I don't need what you have to offer me because God has greater things in store for me than the than the spoils of Sodom. You know, and, and I thought about this. I was wondering, like, well, what's to say that this wasn't God's way of blessing Abram, right? Like, you've all heard the analogy that the guy who's um, standing on the house that's that's being flooded and, and a helicopter comes and says, you know, hey, let me rescue you. And he says, no, I'm praying for God to rescue me. And a boat comes by. No, I'm praying. And, and, you know, and then he gets to heaven and God says, well, I sent a boat and a helicopter like you prayed and I gave you deliverance. So how do we how do we differentiate from this situation and say, well, God's promised to bless Abram. He won a great victory for him. Why would God not use the spoils of Sodom to be that avenue or that method of blessing? I think it's tied to one, Abram making this oath before probably. But two, I think Abram discerned, spiritually discerned, that this was going to obligate him to Sodom in some way. That Sodom was going to strip God of the glory of this and was going to obligate Abram to potentially have to pay this back at some point. And Abram wants nothing to do with Sodom. He's aware enough about the evil that's going on down there. He wants nothing to do with any type of dealings with Sodom because there's no real trust factor that, that those dealings will play out the way that they should. And so he just says, I don't want my hands, I don't want my hands on your stuff at all. So kind of going back to our summary, we said that as believers, we're called to act justly and sacrificially towards those around us, regardless of how they have treated us, with the ultimate goal of God receiving glory through our actions. That's what we see play out in this narrative here. Okay, this is a this is a man lot who does not deserve to be rescued. Who in our flesh, if we were in that situation, may have just said, you've, you've chosen your lot. You've chosen what you, what you uh, wanted to do. Now you're going to reap what you've sown. But what we're called to do in scripture is to respond justly, whether that person has acted that way towards us or not. Um, that we're called in the same way Christ loved us, in the same way that Christ passionately pursued us as enemies. We too are to extend that level of blessing to those around us, regardless of how we've been treated. So the application kind of flowing out of that summary, my call to be a blessing to others should extend to those in my life that least deserve my blessings. For in so doing, I am providing a living example of the gospel truths I claim to believe. Like this, this would tie in perfectly with, with the parable that Jesus says where, where the one man is forgiven and then turns around and doesn't forgive the one that owes him. Right? For Abram to say, I'm not going to forgive Lot. I'm not going to go help Lot would be completely contrary to how God has been dealing with Abram. One, he came to him when he was a moon worshiper and made promises to him when he didn't deserve them. And then when Abram demonstrated a lack of faith and trust in Egypt, allows Abram to come out of that with his wife, allows him to come back and worship and build an altar, extends forgiveness in the same way that First John promises that if we confess our sins, he's faithful to forgive us. For then Abram to turn around and say, I'm not going to extend the same grace to Lot would have been completely contrary to what he claimed to believe in. And so this is a reminder to us that our call is to be a blessing to those in our life and to extend that blessing to those that least deserve it. Because in doing so, we're providing a living example of the gospel truths we claim to believe. We model the gospel when we serve people around us that don't deserve it. And it's a constant reminder to us that that we are being blessed by the possessor of heaven and earth when we certainly least deserve it as well. I think that's the big thrust and overall picture of this passage. Um, You know, again, we said that it sets the stage for Sodom's destruction and why that's a rightful response because God's already provided warnings. We're also going to see the benefit next week of Melchizedek being a part of this story and the, um, the type of Christ that he serves as and 
um, and the way that Hebrews uses him as well. I um, encourage you this week to maybe do some personal study on your own in the book of Hebrews. Is it Hebrews 7? Hebrews 7, where Melchizedek has talked about, um, you know, there's a, there's a lot of speculation about his identity. Um, so it may serve you well to, to explore that a little bit as to um, who he actually is, because um, there's some unique things said about him in the New Testament that, um, that, that cause some speculation about who he might be. So um, if you don't have anything to potentially study this week, I encourage you to maybe read through Hebrews 7 um, and let your, um, your mind kind of focus in on uh, who Melchizedek is and, and why he's important and, and how he serves us as believers uh, in this passage as well. So we'll look at that next week. All right, let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for uh, just the reminders uh, that we've seen throughout this chapter. Um, we thank you for a long narrative story that plays out like a movie. Um, God, we thank you that we can see um, a, a hero in this story, uh, a man like us who sees injustice happening around him and through faith in you and through your power is able to stand up to that injustice um, and responds and fights for what's right. Um, God, we're thankful that in this story, we're also reminded that while we're not physical descendants of Abram, that you care deeply about us um, in the same way that you cared deeply about Lot and wanted his rescue to, to happen. And so, Father, we thank you for our own rescue, um, our own salvation this morning. Even though we're not physical descendants, we thank you that you have grafted us into the family of Abram and made us children of faith. God, we thank you that uh, your sovereign protection over Abram and where he was living at the time of this invasion is a reminder to us that when circumstances don't play out the way that we want to, that oftentimes it's for our own protection, um, and maybe we see that down the road. And so, Father, we're thankful that you give us a bigger picture here of Abram and why you did not want him settling in the better land um, for his own protection when this invasion was to come. Father, I would I would ask that you would remind us constantly that we we should be acting justly towards those around us, that we should be uh, people that want to see the right things happening around us and want to uh, work towards those things. Um, Father, I pray that we would be reminded of the encouragement that's offered here, that you are in control of all great nations. Um, and as Father, as we continue to see history unfold and potentially down the road when uh, nation a nation greater than ours rises to power that maybe is... Uh, evil, uh, even more so than our own nation. Uh, Father, we're thankful that as nations come and go, that you are uh, overseeing all of those things and you allow kings to come to power only through your own provision. And that ultimately you can uh, you can defeat nations when you desire as well. And so we're thankful for that encouragement that you have a plan that's playing out and, and no king, no earthly power can thwart that. Um, Father, I pray that we would leave this morning uh, reminded of the gospel in our own life that when we least deserved salvation, you extended it to us. Uh, when we had offended you and mistreated you and rebelled against you and desired everything besides you, when we had put our hope and faith and trust in the creation rather than the creator, God, when we were at our worst, you extended love to us. And uh, God, I pray that we would be faithful to to act that way towards others in our own life, that when people offend us, when people don't act the way that we wanted them to act towards us, when people seem unloving to us or when people seem to ignore us, Father, that we would not allow that to shape how we respond to them. Um, Father, instead, we would be a, a, a type of Christ as well in the way that we act. Um, God, that we would continue to extend love and blessing to those in our life that in our own minds, or maybe least deserving of it. God, I pray that we would see that in doing so, we are picturing the gospel to those around us. And Father, help us to be reminded that if we simply treat others well that treat us well, that we're no different than the ungodly. Um, God, we're thankful that Abram was able to go to war in this situation and to do so differently with different purposes. Um, God, help us to be mindful always that in, in being a blessing to others that we're not to do so for our own personal gain or our own personal glory, that ultimately we want to see souls saved and we want to see others around us blessed so that your kingdom expands. 
So God, I pray this week that we would cling to your promises to do good to us. We would not seek to focus our intention this entire week on trying to earn good for ourselves, that we can rest knowing that you have good intent for us and that frees us to seek out the good of others around us. So Father, I pray that we would live in light of those truths this week. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.